Hello, and welcome back to the Legends Podcast with me, Sarah Faruya of SF Creative and Sarah Faruya Coaching, where I am rising like a phoenix from the ashes after a one-year break to season seven, where our theme is legends of reinvention, stories of renaissance, and the phoenix rising from the fire. I believe there are many ways to lead a life and everybody has stories. So let's get into these creative musings from Sarah and her guests. Enjoy. Hello, everybody, and welcome, welcome, welcome. This to the Legends Podcast Season 7. Today, I am introducing a lovely, lovely lady who is based in Europe now. Welcome, Sarah Tapp. Hi, Sarah. Hi, fellow Sarah. How are you? I know. So many Sarahs everywhere. Oh, you know, it puts me in mind of when we first met um, about 12 years ago, I was running a women's networking organization called Few for Empowering Women in Japan. And at my very last meeting, when I was graduating from being the president, Sarah was our speaker at the time. She was working for a toy firm. And um, she was just such a great speaker. But then at the end of that, one of my colleagues, my vice president had organized a flash mob to come in and sing a song. Do you remember? I have to tell you, I don't, but probably only because I never told you this. I felt that I didn't do a very good job at the speech, that I had misread the audience. And I think I was in my own head so much about it. that No, I was so pleased when you offered to speak to me again. I was like, well, I couldn't have fucked it up (laughs) that badly. (laughs) Years of shame. Die in one <laughs> small sentence. <laughs> oh, you, by the way, this is a bit sweary. You can swear as much as you like. It's an adult I podcast. I didn't see that. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> totally fine. So, oh my God, that's amazing. So let me sweep away that shame. I loved your speech. I loved it. I remember clearly you talking about, which we'll talk about in a bit, your, your upbringing in Hawaii. And I was absolutely fascinated about this kind of, like what you were describing. I, I can't even... Okay, maybe it was something about no running water or something like that, or just running around with bare feet and things like Okay, you see, it was brilliant. You didn't misread the audience. You just don't know what I, I just love throwing things out there. Anyway, my vice president had arranged for a flash mob to come in and to sing a song called Thank You, Sarah. And it was Thank You, Sarah. Thank You, Sarah. Thank You, Sarah Jean, who's the vice president. And they, it was like there was this cup song at the time where everybody, they, they, Stacked all the cups up and sang this song. Yeah. And um, I was just so humbled by that. I was so blown away by just being uh, by that like gesture. And I was so happy. And I've got a photograph of you and me together drinking wine. And I had like a nice proper dress on and long, 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 long hair. And I just looked so ordinary. You, you were never ordinary for what people keep worth, saying but... that to me. <laughs> <laughs> it just, you know, sometimes it just takes a while for it to, to be allowed to come out. No, um, I mean, I do, yeah. I do remember that group very well, though. And Sarah Jean, who you just mentioned, also yeah. such a brilliant woman. What a oh, great group yeah. that was. Oh, yeah, brilliant. And no, we loved having you there. It was very informative. I really loved it. I felt so privileged having you there. So, anyway, let's get into it about Sarah Tapp. Sarah was born and raised in Hawaii. She earned a bachelor's degree in East Asian studies from Oberlin College in Ohio and promptly moved to Japan, where she spent almost 15 years building a career in corporate communications. Sarah has done PR work for a wide range of companies and products from baby formula to fighter jets and worked in almost every area of communications from copywriting to risk and crisis comms. God, I need you in my business. (laughs) Sarah and her husband relocated to Luxembourg in 2016 when their daughter was eight months old. She's now eight years old and has a younger sister aged seven. That's a legendary move. After a stint (laughs) at digital marketing agency, she joined Amazon, where she currently manages PR and policy communications out of the company's European HQ. On weekends, she hosts a show on Today Radio, the English language arm of RTL, one of Europe's largest media groups. She recently co-presented the live English commentary for the Luxembourg Song Contest. Amazing. Ahead of the country's return to Eurovision for the first time in 31 years. Oh, my God. That's so amazing. It's, I mean... (laughs) 
the Eurovision Song Contest is so huge in the UK. It's a family event, you know? You never didn't sit down and watch that in the 70s and 80s. Sarah now lives with her family in the countryside in her very limited free time. She enjoys going to gigs and sitting in cafes with a book. Welcome. Simple pleasures. Legend. <laughs> All right. So let's get into this, Sarah. I just, oh, just, just love that. What a, what a total move though, coming, like, talk about reinvention with an eight month old daughter moving to the other side of the world where, yeah, wow. Amazing. I think Maybe we'll, I think we'll, we'll talk about that when we get <laughs> to low points. <laughs> <laughs> really? It wasn't easy? <laughs> oh, Lord. <laughs> uh, I just think I, I admire anybody who has kids. Um, and and who doesn't as well? But there's something very unique. Uh, there's something very um, specific about um, moving with children and things like that as well, isn't there? It's just an it's next level organisation and badassery. All right. So um, my opening question is: Tell me about a reinvention you have admired or has had some kind of influence or impact on you. Yeah. You know, the, I'll just go with the very first one that came to mind, which is Kim Gordon, who's one of the family <gasps> members of Sonic Youth. Oh, do you also love her? I lo- I adore her. <laughs> so I read her book a few years ago, and it wasn't actually the book that did it for me. I read the book because I read an interview that she had done, and it was a really random interview, to be honest. I want to say it was in L or some other kind of women's magazine, fashion magazine, but it was after the breakup of her marriage to Thurston Moore, who was, you know, the one of the other people in, in Sonic Youth. Um, I know it's not doing him justice to intro him that way, but basically, you know, these two people who were in love and got married and had, had a child together and were in a band broke up. And I think for her, it, he fell in love with someone else who was much younger. And I hate to have my reinvention story have anything to do with a man, frankly, but I read this interview with her and just, you know, the, the reinvention that she went through, she lost so much in one go, you know, her band, her marriage, probably a lot of her identity up until that point. And the way that she talked about it and handled it was so graceful that I just was floored by it I find grace like a kind of interesting concept and something that I'm not personally very good at it's something I aspire to and it's actually my oldest daughter Lily's middle name like it truly is an aspirational quality for me but um you know the way she kind of addressed it and you could feel her feeling through what she was saying you could feel the sadness and the loss, but how she kind of went through that instead of sidestepping it or making a joke about it or any of these other kind of like ways of coping that we all do. She sort of put it out there, let it air, and then move through it on to talking about the work that she was, you know, doing now as a solo artist. So obviously she's written a memoir. She's put out, I think, a couple albums now. Um, which are the same kind of hardcore post-punk, noisy, not particularly beautiful or pretty or easy to listen to stuff that she always did as part of Sonic Youth, but now is doing with collaborators, but basically as a solo artist. And um, I I just, I just love her and I admire her and I admire her more knowing what she went through on a personal level uh, than I did did before as an artist who I also admired for her music and her artwork and all the other things she was into. Mm, so it's the way she handled the the split in the marriage and her husband leaving her for somebody else and that she brought grace to that. Do you remember any more detail about that? I'm really interested in like, how did she, like what when you bring grace to something like that, grace is such a fantastic word, isn't it? It's like, um, I don't need to be graceful, but I do need to give myself grace all the time and other people grace when they F up and when they are rude to me or whatever it is, or when I perceive something in a slightly insane way, <laughs> I need to give grace. <laughs> no, to, yeah. It's a tricky concept, isn't it? It's not yeah. exactly the same as 
forgiveness or empathy no, or understanding no. it's it's kind of got a lot of nuance in it which yeah. is I think why I find it fascinating but it's mystical it, almost yeah and she made this kind of offhand comment about like it was I'm sure it wasn't offhand it was probably quite practiced but it came across as very offhand of saying something like well you know it was a typical story like a younger woman caught his eye and he got sort of smitten and felt his own youth come back to him. And that was it. He was off kind of just the, the precise way. I wish I had the quote in front of me, but the way she said it, I, I just thought was really just really mature and yeah. healthy, but still acknowledging the hurt there. And, um, and yeah, I think it's really, she's 70 now, but I think it's really very hard I can imagine after such a such a profound and like 360 kind of lots you know again like her her marriage her band her identity were all like really shaken to the core at a point that was to say later in life I'm not sure exactly how old she was but I think earlier mid mid 50s that is a tough time for like every single Thing that is really big in your life to change yeah. uh, but it did and just the way she navigated it I thought was phenomenal I mean a lot better than I probably could ever do but something to you know aspire to yeah it's really important to have these kind of aspirational figures to to cling on to in in times like that 70 she's she's one of those people like I think like Debbie Harry as well it's like well, wait a second what you're nearly 80 shut up that, that's not possible. No, cool cool as all hell. And, you know, as I, I'm 43 now, but as I have gotten older, as you are more than, like, well aware, there's so much ageism out there toward women. And I was, I'm sure, guilty of it when I was younger. It's something that you don't really see that much until you're sort of on the receiving end of it or your friends are or something like that. But um, as I've gotten older, especially in my career, I've started to look around and say, like, what kind of roles professionally or like what kind of jobs can you as a woman gracefully get older in? Like, where are you allowed to do that? You know, and in, in business, and I've always been in corporate roles, I think it's quite tough because there's this expectation that when you're older, you should be, you know, a leader, you should be a director, a vice president, something like that. Um, and I I kind of peaked early in my career. I achieved what I wanted to do professionally in my early 30s, and I was very fortunate to do that. Um, but it's given me a kind of permission now to not worry about linear progression and not that bothered by titles. I'm much more interested in, you know, what I'm actually doing on a day-to-day -day basis and is it challenging and is it intellectually engaging. But I look at someone like Kim Gordon, um, I look at, Annie Nightingale, the BBC DJ. Oh, R.I.P. And, and this last oh, few bless weeks. her. Yeah. Yeah, I'm definitely huge for all of my icons. Blazing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but I just, I think music is, is really interesting for me too, just because in women in music and women in the music industry, it is an industry where age doesn't really matter. Other things matter. And sometimes those are problematic, like how cool you are or how thin you are. But I think it is, a space where it's it's really less important and nobody cares they care more about your knowledge your experience whether you're cool or not so yeah I think for me um I, I kind of joked for a really long time that my career goal was to start each new job one hour later and uh like my have my start time each day be one hour later and then retire as like a late night radio dj and i stand by that i think that's quite a viable retirement on, plan oh my god you are so on track for that aren't you like you, you you're you are accruing that amazing i spoke to a friend recently well actually somebody who was a, a client some years ago in a in a a journey program that I was running for executive women at the time. And she's just retired. She's 50. She worked Amazing. for 25 years in the same company, uh, corporate. Um, then she was offered a big package to retire to, to, um, they were downsizing that particular role. She was offered a role mm -hmm. and then offered a package. She's, she looked at her package and went, I can retire. 
That's amazing. Good for her. Take the money and run. I know. And it's just like, <laughs> who, nobody's telling us this. <laughs> Could somebody, it's, it's like, we may have these kind of lofty aspirational goals where I'd like to retire by the time I'm 55 or 58, like my dad did, or like 60 or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And um, P.S., he was a teacher. He, and again, teachers just got like boomer teachers in England, just got amazing packages. So um, that's an early nice retirement. to hear. Yeah, mm. early retirement. But my generation, no. And well, like um, you were saying about shame earlier, you know, like I think in the past there was this idea that it was somehow shameful, maybe, mm-hmm. to, to get off the kind of corporate treadmill. Yeah. yeah. Um, and one of the few things for me, uh, in my own opinion, that, that was good that came out of like the pandemic is that we all just reassessed our priorities and our values. At least many people did. I Ongoing. did. <laughs> yeah, very much so. but, but what a like what a gift that was for all of us you know to kind of have this opportunity to rethink whether we were running in the direction we wanted to be running in and whether we wanted to be running at all you know yeah yeah I love it Sarah this is so such rich like I love that you were doing a lifestyle design one hour later and eventually I want to be a, a late night DJ I mean, your passion for music is amazing, but I'd love to know where that came from. So could you tell us a bit about your background, your childhood and your upbringing? Yeah, I um. So as you know, but your listeners probably don't. I grew up off the grid, which is like, I think, quite unusual. Um, Yeah, my parents were were hippies. My mom's originally from Ohio. My dad's from Indiana. And they they met, um, you know, when they were younger in in uni. And my dad graduated. My mom dropped out. But after they got together, they moved to Hawaii. My dad was an electrical engineer. So it's also a bit of a strange story because I'm obviously Caucasian. And uh, when I say I was born and raised in Hawaii, people are like, military uh but no not in my case my dad actually went and worked for Sheraton and he was the chief engineer there for like many many years kind of keeping it all running um in the back the hotels yeah, yeah yeah the hotel chain so he worked for the Sheraton Waikoloa for for a zillion years and um they when you know I was I was not even born yet so I'm hearing this all secondhand but when they were first in Hawaii and my mom was pregnant she's quite heavily pregnant at one point they were kind of hippies and they were living in this like rundown little shack and a a guy that they had made friends with or connected with sort of pulled my dad aside and was like you know look your wife is like about to pop you can't keep her living in these kind of conditions and he found them a house and um this house that I grew up in to this day, the area is is totally off the grid. It's right down by the beach in this little village called Ho'okena uh, in the southern part of Kona on the Big Island. And um, yeah, I just we grew up. There was no electricity. There was no running water. We had to, you know, use kerosene lamps or use generators or um you know, bring our own water in. There are people to this day that do this in Hawaii. You know, they have a pickup truck where the back is a big tank and they fill it with water from, water from like a county water station. They haul it down and put it into each individual household's tank. Uh, so I grew up like that for quite a few years and um, only kind of had access to electricity and television intermittently until many years later when my parents had divorced and remarried and uh, my stepdad had a had a farm and we paid I think at the time it was like a hundred thousand dollars it was a huge insane amount of money that no one you know in my family had, had ever thought of but we had to pay this huge amount of money to like install actual electricity poles from the main road all the way up to the top of our farm where our house was and then it went from nothing to like a hundred TV channels and you know access to pop culture and it was it was kind of uh, life altering uh, in a good way but I think at the time I I felt really as a kid I felt really a little bit disconnected a little bit uncool for not knowing you know what other kids were talking about I yeah I didn't watch TV like I didn't know about cartoons or other things people were into. Um, And I guess if I think back how I got started with music, I definitely didn't really realize this until years and years later, but books and radio were like the two things that I had for entertainment. And I'm still a huge reader to this day. Um, And I, I never, I never 
tried to pursue music in any way, first of all, because I don't have the discipline to no. practice an instrument yeah. or any kind of vocal talent. But also um, when my mom remarried, my stepdad is uh, is a musician, actually quite successful one. He's he's a traditional wine musician and he's won a few Grammys for a traditional music. what? He's a Hawaiian musician, so he oh. plays a kind of Hawaiian music called uh, kiho'alu, which means slack key. And he's one of the kind of, I would say now, elder statesmen of Hawaiian music that's trying to sort of preserve this particular wow. tradition within it. So he's he's won some awards also for producing uh, younger artists who are coming up in that genre. Okay, so this um, is cool because you're the first person I know who's got like Grammy award winners in the family. So <laughs> let's just uh, let's just note that in the podcast. Oh, <laughs> well, I hate to mention it be- only because I think people then assume that like I got you know a lot of musical training or familiarity with the industry or things like that. And I, I suppose I did, but only in the sense that I spent loads and loads and loads of time as a kid going to gigs that he was playing. You know, he he had a regular. Um, evening slot at one of the big really posh hotels and as much as I could I would always just go with him and wander about the hotel like a feral child (laughs) (laughs) but you know I would I would go and sit in the kind of audience and the staff at the restaurant would always like take care of me and so I spent a lot of hours listening to music as a kid I mean lots and lots and lots and um I think actually the thing that stopped me from trying to do anything musically for a long time was being around people who were really good at it and not feeling like I had any particular talent or anything I could contribute. Yeah, amazing. I wonder when you first got all those channels on the TV, can you remember how it felt? Was it like being punched in the face or were you like a wide, was it like the yellow brick road? How did it feel to you to have all all that information? I mean, it was like, all of the all of the good but dangerous chemicals rushing straight to your brain, you know. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I think my parents were quite. Um, I, they weren't strict. They were really lovely, actually. But we had a farm, and everybody was really expected to contribute. I mean, as a kid, like I worked constantly on our farm, like picking coffee, taking care of animals, like pulling weeds, doing whatever uh, you know needed to be done, and so. It's not that they were strict, but there were like kind of natural guardrails on how much I could lose myself in that kind of stuff. Like I just didn't didn't have a lot of free time then, don't have a lot of free time now. Yeah. Uh, but that was probably quite a healthy thing, you know, in the end. Yeah, amazing. And do you see that as being one of your big reinventions then when that came came in or when your your um stepdad you call him your stepdad or your other dad or you yeah I call him my stepdad yeah Yeah, his name is George he's lovely um you know for me personally that probably wasn't it but the first big one for me was I um I was I started school slightly early and so I was 13 when I started high school but I um I was actually, the true story here is I was quite intimidated by our local high school and by having to ride the bus a long way there. Um, It was really rough. And it had like, I think at the time, one of the highest teenage pregnancy rates in the country. And like, I just heard so many horror stories about it that I was quite keen to get the hell out of there. And uh, so the first kind of big reinvention for me was I applied like myself on my own of my own volition to go off to boarding school I just wanted to leave and I um there's a really unique school in Maui in Lahaina called Lahaina Luna uh, where I went I ended up going and and it's a public high school that has a private boarding program and it's intended actually for kids who are exactly like me who are you know from other parts of Maui that are far away or neighboring islands who want to kind of go somewhere better but don't really have the means to and they have a a huge working farm like a huge agricultural program where you work three hours a day in exchange for a room and board and you board in dorms that are on the campus it's actually it's a brilliant brilliant very historical high school it's the oldest high school west of the rocky mountains it's founded by missionaries and, and local hawaiians in like 1831 but i this was the first thing for me of just going I'm not happy with what options are available to me and I need to do something about it. What can I do? And I don't remember how I found out about it. I think it's probably through like a guidance counselor, or a teacher at my middle school. But yeah, I, I applied and next thing I knew, I had graduated middle school and I was like off on my way to go to a totally different high school. 
And your parents were completely island. behind this. Your parents were okay with this? They were really supportive. And, you know, in fact, after after the first two years where I was a boarder at, at this school, um, my parents, my mom and stepdad actually went bankrupt and we had to, you know, we had to liquidate. We had to sell the farm. It, farming is not a particularly lucrative business. Um, and they were also at like an inflection point in their lives. And so having, you know, dispensed with the farm, um, they actually moved to Maui. And it was brilliant for me because I was able to keep going at my high school, but I became a regular day student. I didn't, I didn't board anymore. Um, so I kind of got both of those experiences, you know, being a day student came with, you know, having a part-time job, having a lot more freedom in terms of social life and things like that. Um, so it was great. And to this day, my family in Hawaii are kind of split between the big island where my dad and stepmom are and Maui, where my stepdad is now, my mom's passed away, but um, yeah, it's, it it was a wild ride, but I think I think it kind of became a theme for me of just saying, okay, you know, I grew up not particularly well off, but saying, what are the options available? How can I do something that's better even on top of what's in front of me? And and how can I get myself kind of to the next step? And I think I think for a long time, maybe when you and I first met, I was a bit embarrassed about it to be honest it's hard to be in like a kind of posh professional job and admit that you were really poor growing up you Interesting. Know? But, um, yeah I was yeah I, I yeah yeah I totally understand it's all it's a it's an interesting thing isn't it to, I mean certainly in the UK people are always kind of checking what where you are class-wise but I think it's the same in the corporate world or you know you say you have a posh job it's like yes of course that people are always trying to kind of map where you are from there's questions and you hear them and they they're so um coded all the questions are always coded and yeah it's interesting so and it's also like you don't want to hit over but you also don't want to hit mm. under you have to find this kind of place until you can find the um the, there's a beautiful Anne Voskamp quote which is um shame dies where stories are told in safe spaces or when you tell your story enough to like like now, I'm sure you don't really give a shit. You know, one of the most beautiful things about getting older and and, and having oh, having a bit of success behind you, so yes, that you don't feel such an of you know inferiority course. complex. But yeah, it's like yes, years, you know, yeah. In your twenties and thirties, maybe you do have savvy where you where in certain spaces you need to be careful mm -hmm. about how much you disclose. Uh, ongoing. <laughs> But, um, you know, yeah, I've kind of, well, I mean, if you've listened to any of my recent podcasts, I've kind of jettisoned any, <laughs> any kind of like, oh, should I talk about that? It's just like, what would feel the most free to me right now? Yeah, I'm just going to talk about this. <laughs> I love that. I think that's so healthy. And yeah, you know, I still, I still kind of catch myself like observing it, you know, here in Europe, the big thing is like, oh, it's winter, you know, where, where are you going on your holiday and all of this like extremely first world problems you know but I you know in a in a professional context I can pass it off kind of like you know my husband and I actually are rubbish at winter sports I'm from Hawaii he's from Louisiana like neither of us grew up with any kind of snow so you know we're we're not the skiing type but in fact like growing up that was like never something that was like on the table for me it was it, even if we lived near snow we wouldn't have been able to afford it um but yeah, I don't, now I think of it less as like a, I should have this or, you know, and I don't or anything like that. I think of it kind of more as like a, I, I don't know, I'm in the back of my head, I'm not explaining this very well, but there's always like a kind of values alignment thing that I'm thinking oh. about. Like when I, when I catch myself reacting a certain way to something I sort of stop myself and I'm like how am I actually feeling about this like why am I feeling the way I'm feeling about it and and yeah I think I think things like people worrying about where they go on ski holiday are like very tone deaf to the state of the world right now but on the other hand I feel a bit judgmental for feeling that way so like I'm in my head a lot more than I was when I was younger um but I don't think that's a bad thing I'm less quick to react and I'm I'm more thoughtful about it hopefully <laughs> maybe grace goal, at least maybe since grace has been introduced into the uh the space between us maybe that's the an interesting way to be like have grace for them but also have grace for 
the fact that maybe people are just upset by the state of the world, but they want to go skiing. It's so interesting. It's I was totally. About, yeah. Um, I was talking about skiing to a friend the other night and saying it's actually quite a good social skill to have. It's not just a nice skill to have. It's actually a good social, it's a good kind of social status skill to have. And I um, also am rubbish at it. And I feel really sad <laughs> it's about a bit that. Like golf. No, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. For the northern country. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like it, it actually is beneficial to be going skiing with people because a lot of stuff gets done and a lot of relationships are built there. So anyway, we've gone off piece. See what I did there? Do you see what I did there? Very good. Very good. So what happened next then? So you decided to study East Asian studies, was it at university? What made you what made yeah. you study that and what and what was it like moving to mainland USA and studying there what kind of reinvention was that oh my god well you know it's a bit of a rogue choice going from Hawaii where like 35% of the population have ja- some kind of Japanese ancestry right. to Ohio excuse me to study Japanese like it's a really stupid choice on the surface of it but i think i was always really interested in um in being different and doing doing the kind of rogue, like unpopular thing or like making the less popular choice. So when I was in school in Hawaii, Japanese was always an option from I think sixth grade or something onward. So for quite a long time, I had the opportunity if I wanted to, to study Japanese, but everyone did it. And they did it with an eye to going and working in the hospitality industry, which like I just wasn't interested in and and didn't think was for me. So I did the less popular, less common thing there and studied Spanish, um, which when I realized, you know, that in the in the continental United States, like literally everyone takes Spanish as, as their second language, I didn't feel particularly like um like an iconoclast. But I went to I went to Oberlin in Ohio because my mom's family was still in Ohio. My grandma was there and, and her uh, sisters and their husbands, who I was all very close to. And um, I had actually been planning on going to college in New York, but I think at the last minute, for various reasons, it just felt like a better a better fit to to be in Ohio and be a bit closer to family and people we knew. Because you know, I think my parents were a bit worried about we're so far away. What what if something happens? There's nobody anywhere nearby to jump in. Um, but yeah, I I ended up doing Japanese only because I got really frustrated that as a first year student, you know, having, having worked quite hard at Spanish and I, I did a study abroad in Oaxaca after I graduated from high school, but I had worked really hard to get quite decent at Spanish. And then I, I was kind of told like, well, you're a freshman, you can't, you can't get a spot in like one of these advanced classes. You have to start again from the beginning uh, because you just don't have priority. And I got got really belligerent and I was like, well, fuck it. No, I'm not going to do that then. So I just messed, I kind of messed about for a bit. I took a, I took a semester of French. My French teacher was from Senegal. He was a brilliant man. He's still a professor at a university in the States. He's called Medun Gay. I loved him to pieces. He offered me a private study in Wolof, which is one of the languages of Senegal. So I did that for, for half a year. And then I just sort of was, was at a loss, like with what to do with myself. And a guy I was really good friends with, like quasi dating at the time was doing Japanese. And he was like, why don't you try Japanese? Like you, you never know. It's certainly not popular. You'll get a place like go on. And it turns out my college had a really good Japanese program. It was actually um, where Edwin Reischauer did his undergrad and he went on to, to Harvard and they named their Japanese program after him. So the, Oberlin had graduated quite a lot of people in Japanese who had gone and made a bunch of money in the bubble. And there were quite good, um, as I understand it, alumni donations coming back to fund this program. So for a tiny college in Ohio, it had a really super strong Japanese program. And, um, you know, I I did it for a year. I went to Kyoto on a study abroad. I, I thrived there. Like I just, I finally felt like I had hit my stride in college and knew what I enjoyed. Um, and yeah, I just, I just loved it so much. And so when I came back, I, um, I skipped a year of Japanese. The immersion had been really effective and I, I managed to complete my degree in the typical four years. And then I sort of realized like, well, I guess if I want to keep using this, um, the only, the only place to do it is Japan. And so I, I applied to the JET program. I was a CIR in Miyazaki prefecture. I worked for a local board of education office for three years. And, and then I moved to Tokyo and it was sort of off to the races. 
amazing. So what's the JET program? I've had another person on here. One of my other um, legends was on the JET program as well. But what does it stand yeah. for? Japan. It's a huge, huge program that's been going on for years. It's called Japan Exchange and Teaching. And um, there are three different, at least at the time I was in it, there are three different kind of roles people could do. The majority of people go to work out of a school or, or a board of education office indeed and working with multiple schools. And they teach English, but they also do some sort of cultural immersion type of activities and things like that. The role I was in was for people who do speak Japanese and you go and work for a local government office and you do all kinds of crazy things. I I worked with 11 local women's groups. I worked with the Rotary Club, the Lions Club. I did work with all the schools in my village, but um, because I had studied uh, within Asian studies, I had done Zen poetry. Actually, that's what I wrote my thesis on. They assigned me to the, the hometown of this very famous Japanese Tanka poet called Wakayama Boksui. And uh, while I was there, one of the things that the local government was doing was actually building a memorial museum to this amazing poet who had been born in the area. So um, I got tapped to like translate all of the materials for that museum, which was so cool for me. And also, again, like getting back to this thing about always kind of being constantly assessing what my options were. I wasn't really sure if I wanted to go back to grad school. And if I did, it would have been to do Japanese literature. So for me, it was kind of a way of keeping that door open, you know, doing yeah. something relevant in the meantime, in case that's what I decided I wanted to do. Um, but it was just, it was such a brilliant experience. Yeah. And and there are just, I don't know how many people are in the program, but it's at least a few thousand every year. And it's a kind of um, cooperation between the Japanese government and various other international partners. So like my job interview was at the Japanese embassy in Washington, DC, which is very cool and very intimidating. Cool. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, no, I've remembered now. It was Gretchen Miura who who mm -hmm. was one of my guests just before um, Christmas. And she actually ended up marrying a Zen priest. So there's this little thread that runs through here. And she also, she, she was studying, um, I can't remember what it was now, but she was studying something along these lines. But um, she was also studying, she found her way to Zen via other things. But and then ended up marrying a Zen priest when she was a jet up in in uh, Akita, who, you know, it's 25 years later, four kids, and now we run a grief circle together. It's pretty amazing, oh my isn't gosh. it? But oh, what I I'm, love that. I mean, I love it too, but you just like the jet and the Zen poetry. It just was like, oh my God, that's really um, similar. It's I love similar. looking at the little golden threads that run through these things. But I'm also thinking about the golden thread that runs from poetry to song and how you, you somehow you're always finding a way to be with art. I love that you say that. I think I I think I had like kind of a truly kind of an inferiority complex about it. My mom was quite a brilliant um artist. She was a brilliant sketcher and drawer and watercolor painter. And um, yeah, had her own side hustle, sort of selling T-shirts that had her designs on them and stuff when I was growing up. But again, it's this thing of like, I was always around people who were really good at it. My stepdad, the musician, actually got his MFA in sculpture. And he was also brilliant at that. And I think I just, I never really particularly thought I had any kind of talent for it, but I definitely appreciated it and wanted yeah. to be around it. And I guess for me, I found it in literature and you know, I found it in books. The true reason that I ended up doing Asian studies, in addition to having had like a fantastic year in Kyoto, although I would say it was kind of decided before that, you know, I had to commit to what I was going to do. Um, it's that I, I read this is so cheesy, but I read Snow Country by Yasunari Kawabata, which uh, obviously he won the Nobel Prize. I think he was the first, I think he was the first Japanese author to win the Nobel Prize in literature. And then I read his Nobel Prize acceptance speech, which was called Japan, the Beautiful and I. And then I read Kenzaburo Oi, another huge Japanese author's um, speech that was a riff on that that was called Japan the ambiguous and I and I was just sucked in like I loved that it was that so much of Japanese literature is like unlikable protagonists and ambiguous or not particularly happy endings and love it and this change over time even within Japan which as you know as you know is kind of famously slow to change but that 
it's gone from like the these noble lords, people who are at the, the highest of their art form, representing their country, talking about Japan being beautiful, to someone in that same position being able to acknowledge that it's not just beauty, that there's ambiguity, that it's complicated. Um, I just love that. I loved it so much and I found it so antithetical to everything I had grown up with, with America and Disney and blah, you know, I just found it very appealing actually. <laughs> so yeah, I would say actually I was attracted, I was really attracted to Japan because of literature specifically and art more generally. Um, and it was a bit of a joke among our friends for a while because I think there historically there are a couple of different groups of people who study Japan in some way and are drawn to Japan. And there's definitely, I think, like the the pop culture, ma manga, anime, J-pop kind of contingent. And weirdly, I was just never a part of that. A lot of my friends were, my husband was, but that was not me. I was like a historical nerd. And then you have like the finance people. So, so yeah, probably me and the, the woman you mentioned, we're, we're probably part of the same tribe of uh Japan people. <laughs> oh, I, lo I love that. And I, I love the kind of the Japan, the ambiguous thing as well with like unlikable protagonists and not especially happy endings. And there's so much that like you can have five pages of just somebody eating a rice ball. And <laughs> do you know what I mean? But I love I, that. I love that I, stuff. Absolutely. <laughs> because it takes you out of it takes you out of language and into something else. I, I'm getting goosebumps thinking about it now, but there's something so deeply mystical about Japan when you scratch the surface off it, especially my family is from the countryside. And so it's just everywhere. Every It's everywhere. If you watch any Miyazaki films, it's everywhere. And if you kind of know what to look for, it's not, you don't know though. It's, it's not teachable. It's like, you know, that when something appears on the side of the road in the corner, that's in the shadows, that something's coming up. It's, it's, uh, it's something else, isn't it? It's, it, and, and, you know, not without, like, it's ambiguous, right? I'm not saying it's good or bad or this or that. It's mm -hmm. just, um, you have to feel the things that are going on in between everything else, I think. So how did you end yeah. up, uh, Sarah, I could talk about this all day, but I think I'd like to, uh, move on to how did you end up moving into the corporate world? Oh Lord. Um, I wanted to be a journalist and yeah. I couldn't afford to be. Right. I was going to, you know what? I was just going to say, it's like, and, and I would say, I love money, right? Money's great. It's such a, a freeing thing. I was talking to somebody else the other day. No, you, you were saying it just before. It's like, yeah, once you get your reputation and your financial status solid, you can pretty much say more or less what you want to, you know? It's yeah, uh, and it gives you the the freedom. It's oh, it's not everything, but it's important. It is important. You know, money. It is. Um, and it it gives you a kind of freedom, or for me, a kind of freedom that I didn't really have before to, yeah. to think about what I wanted, not just what was the best option of what was in front of my face. It took a really long time, Sarah. It probably took more than a decade of working in corporate roles and getting married and getting my own finances and like investments and things like that in order to. to finally feel secure enough to sort of take a step back and go, what, what do I want? But I mean, the, the short story about getting into like a corporate job is basically, I wanted to be a journalist. I went to work for a small company that was a kind of newswire, a little bit like, like business wire, um, where we, we would issue corporate press releases. Um, we had our own little wire, so they would go to Bloomberg, they would go to other outlets and um, as part of that job, I got to do a little bit of reporting of company news. And so it was a bit of that. And then I was hired eventually by one of our one of our clients, our corporate clients, a big Japanese company called Omron to go and work for them in-house as a, as a PR person. And while I was in that job, I thought to myself, like, this is really fun. I really like it. But if I'm going to do it and feel good about doing it, I need to actually learn how to do it. And so I went to uh, Temple University in Tokyo and did like a six course certificate program in branding and communications just to feel better. A bit of rigor. Myself. Yeah, just to sort of say like, you know what, I, I have academically understood the fundamentals in, in addition to everything I'm learning on the job because you can you can get so much from on the job, but yes, I agree. Gaps and holes and things like that. So, yeah. 
Big up to Temple University as well. I am a a, a lecturer, a guest lecturer at Temple University for coaching things. So I love that. Um, I have to give a shout out really quick, Sarah, to Justin McCurry, who's the Tokyo correspondent for The Guardian, and he has been for many years. Yes. I don't know if he knows that he's part of my story, but when I was leaving the JET program, they organized a kind of leavers um, event where they had various people from different types of jobs kind of who had who had stayed in Japan and been successful. They came and spoke to us. And he came in and gave a speech about being a journalist in Japan. And his his opening comments were like, please don't do it. It's a shit job. It pays nothing. And there's already too much competition as it is. And actually, I ended up working with him, you know, like in, once I had my career in PR, but it, it really stuck with me and probably like changed a little bit the course of my life. Wow. So he was somebody who changed the course of your life. Justin McCurry. OK, I will give a shout out to Justin. <laughs> I will add him on social media. He's still going strong for The Guardian, I think. I see his... He uh, is. Yeah, his... He's, he's still great. He's still brilliant. He's one of the um one of those people out there who's fighting the good fight against weird Japan coverage, if you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, we see it, don't we? Yeah, we see it. I don't know what to say about that, but I'm going to move swiftly on. <laughs> so you were here, so you were here and then you you left. So your daughter's eight, and so you must have left about eight years ago. So tell us how your reinventions rolled on and what made you decide to move to Europe of all places. Yeah, my um my husband actually was working for Amazon Japan. He was the local hire, and I was at that point I had flipped back and forth um from the agency back to in-house roles. And you know, as you know, I was working as a director of PR and CSR at Toys R Us. Yes. And after we we got married and we we're pregnant, we found out we we're gonna have a girl. Um, you know, we had a, we did a lot of soul searching about do we want to raise a girl in Japan? And I love Japan, like with my whole heart. Um, it it feels like my own country, you know, even yeah. though it's not. I spent a lot of my life there. And um, so I say this with love, but I, you know, I kind of looked around and uh, particularly at the time I had a colleague at, at Toys R Us who was so brilliant. He'd gone to Stanford. He was really, really smart, kind, well-educated, spoke some of the most phenomenal English of anyone I've ever heard. And he had daughters who were, you know, about 10, I think about 10 years old. And all, they, they were such brilliant kids, but all they wanted to do was be idols. And I thought to myself, like, you know, even here's this person who has every, um, not advantage, but every bit of sort of like Western experience and access and things like that someone who could if they wanted to get up move to the United States get a get an amazing job there and build a different kind of life and I'm not explaining it very well but I just thought like if if someone like that still struggles to get their daughters to want more and to aim higher and to believe that they're capable of doing important things you know with their lives what chance do I see stand of you know it's raising raising girls who maybe share some of my own values and mm -hmm. I think the other the other point that's probably more important is just that we kind of looked my husband and I kind of looked at each other and said you know like when we first moved to Japan there was a lot of um intent and like intentionality with that choice like we both really wanted that for ourselves it was part of our respective plans but we'd been there for so long that it just felt like maybe we're here by inertia as opposed to by choice. And maybe it's time to like shake things up a little bit. Um, so we we kind of looked at both of our respective situations and felt that Amazon was going to give give us the better opportunity to to move and to figure out what our next step was. And he was offered um, a role in London and I think two different roles in Luxembourg. And we had to kind of make a decision about which one we moved to. and. To be totally honest with you, I should have done a lot more research, um, but it, it ended up just being very, very lucky that we picked Luxembourg because nobody at that time knew that Brexit was about to happen. I mean, there was some talk, but it was just pre-Brexit. <laughs> um, and, you know, we 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 now are Luxembourg citizens where we all have the nationality. So we're dual citizens. We, we have European passports. Amazing. This was like a very 
um, purposeful thing. Like we really wanted that for ourselves because 2016 was also the year that Trump got elected. I mean, 2016 was a pivot year for me personally, but it was also a big pivot year for the world. It feels like the year that things started to really go off the rails. Um, And so, you know, we we were very much as Americans going like, what is our long-term plan? Right. And Europe, you know, the fact that you can have dual citizenship where as opposed to in Japan, you know, not not being able to having to give up your U.S. citizenship, um, we, we just wanted that. So, yeah, we ended up in, in Luxembourg. And when we moved, I, Lily was eight months old and I was four months pregnant with Callie and, um, you know, just went from having a great job that I loved, having a huge support network of like friends and colleagues and uh, speaking the language, being totally self-sufficient, being really, had had a couple of bumps after I had Lily, you know, the first few weeks and months were not super easy, but had found my stride again and was went from that place of being really, really solid to like all of a sudden being a trailing spouse and so just someone's wife and someone's mother and heavily pregnant and not speaking the language or knowing what I was doing. Um, so it was, it was a huge uh, reinvention for me. And it took, it took a couple of years, to be honest, to really find my stride again. I mean, that's a lot all in one there because having a baby is yeah. like the reinvention of the gods, isn't it? Uh, it was a mind fuck, to be totally oh. honest with you. For me, for me personally, yeah. it, you know what? Like, I, I love my kids. They're brilliant. And, uh, you know, as every mom is obliged to say, I've yeah, course, of course, I let's qualify do. what I'm about to say. <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. Yes. It just for me, it it just totally shook my sense of self. And I there were a, there was a while where I did not feel that I knew who I was anymore. And I think part of that is that I was so used to understanding myself through the lens of how other people saw me. They didn't actually have my own strong sense of self that I could kind of go back to. Wow. So I I struggled. I really struggled for a while. And the thing that actually helped me eventually get out of it, the beginning of, of it getting better was getting a job here. And it wasn't at Amazon. I, I went and worked for a digital marketing agency, but the woman who had helped us relocate. She was like our local relocation coordinator who helped us find a flat here and things like that. Um, She like rang me up one day and she was like, do you still want a job? It's like, oh my God, yes, please. What? She's like, well, I've actually started working for another company and we need someone, you know, with your skill set. Would you come in for an interview? And like, she really, she kind of saved my life. And actually, this is such a strange story, but Lux is so small that this woman, Valbona, is now one of my colleagues at Amazon. We've both found each other again now. Yeah, Amazing. but she just remembered me. I think she remembered how desperate I was to get back to to, to find something that I could hold on to and have it, you know, be my own thing. And uh, yeah, she she remembered me, and it it really helped. All right. So as we start to kind of close out, there's a couple of things I'm really interested in: is your radio show and what's all that about? And how did like how did you get into music? So it seems like we have the same tastes in music to some degree, but we're ten years apart. So I'm a I'm a Gen X, Gen X, right? I'm a 71 baby. I am right down the middle. Are you like, do you consider yourself like a, a an old millennial or a young Gen Xer? I, you know, I struggle with it because I'm You've got a Gen X and- soul, haven't you? You've got Gen X soul. <laughs> I mean, I grew up basically feral. So yeah, oh, right. Okay. So you're just feral. You're not. Okay. Got it. Got it. Got it. Yeah. <laughs> But, you know, I think between 80, I'm 80, my husband's 83, and that there's like this little three-year window where no one knows what yeah. to do with us. Like, are yeah. you Gen X? Are you millennial? Yeah. I would say a bit of both. And I yeah. I get teased about this a lot, but like I'm on TikTok. I think the kids today are totally all right. I mean, yeah, Me of course, there's always prob- problems, yeah. but like I, I'm always interested in um, kind of. I don't know what what younger people are doing, what they're into. It's one reason that Annie Nightingale, who we briefly mentioned earlier, is like an, an icon for me. She was like that. She was always very, you know, had her had her kind of ear to the the ground about what was coming next. Um, but yeah, I I I think I've got a bit of it all. Bit of Gen X, uh, Gen X, bit of millennial, bit of Gen Z, maybe now. Um, and you know, there's yeah. a lot of data out there that says that if you refuse to grow up, you actually live longer. <laughs> Huzzah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but something about like youthful mentality. Um, but no, musically, uh, basically when COVID 
COVID hit um, in 2020, I turned 40 late that late that year in November. And um, I just kind of had a come to Jesus moment with myself where I realized that I wasn't that happy, that I had done all of the things that I felt I needed to do, that I had to do or that I should do. You know, I, I had achieved professional success. I got married. I had kids. I bought a house and I did all of those things like in the quote unquote right order at the right time. Like I, I, I sort of nailed life, but like, why was I not feeling fulfilled? And I, I went to therapy for the first time in my life. I'd sort of threw myself into that and um, kind of went on this like two year journey of just trying to figure out what it was that I wanted and why I wasn't happy. And actually I was quite annoyed. The first question my therapist asked me after I kind of unloaded it on her was, how old are you? <laughs> and I was like, I don't know, 41, why? And she was like, just so you know, this is something that a lot of women go through at exactly this age. And I don't know, I just kind of felt like, don't make this a hormone thing. But she she wasn't, she was just trying to say that like, yeah, we spend a lot of our lives doing what we're told we should do and looking after other people's needs. And so yeah. it's quite a common thing actually for women to be disconnected from themselves. What the heck is going on? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah. and PS, everything has been a hormone for me in the last five years. So just FYI, <laughs> yeah. I'm so down with let's make it all a hormone thing. And now it's like settled hormone thing because I'm done. <laughs> uh, God, I'm I'm envious, <laughs> but, but happy for you. Oh, yeah. Um, but no, you know, it was, it was great. And so basically I started to, I started to sort of just more seriously think about like, okay, I have to do something on the side that's not just my corporate job and, you know, my family and my yeah. kids. I just have to do something for me and I kind of have to find myself again. And uh, yeah, I, I got into radio. I'll try to keep it really short, but basically I, I listened to radio a lot and found out that the station I'd been listening to offered this program where you could, you had to write a proposal, you had to record a pilot show, it had to go through multiple levels of approval, but they had slots available for volunteers to do shows. So that's how I started. And one of the people who worked at the station at the time who listened to my pilot, who I, I sent the pilot to and asked for feedback, he was later hired by RTL to found their, to, to literally build from scratch their English language station. And uh, we had kept in touch and he brought me over to go and work for them. So now I get paid to do it, which is brilliant. RTL, what does that stand for? Uh, I think, oh, I'm going to tell you the wrong thing. It's definitely Dagio Tele. But it's not it's not Luxembourg because it's a, a regional group. I think I will look it up. But yeah, it's it's just a big regional European broadcaster. I feel like Radio Luxembourg was big over here. It was, you know, it was like the pirate radio thing, yeah, wasn't it? That's Back what in the I days thought. Of, yeah, yeah. So I I feel like there's some Annie Nightingale stuff there. All right. <laughs> so thank you. That's uh, you've brought us up to you've brought us up to speed. So my my final question, Sarah, is there are many ways to lead a life. What does that mean to you? Oh gosh. I need to just think about it for a minute. Um I th I think for me it kind of on the surface it means live and let live, which is something I you know, maybe I go to that immediately because it's something I really believe in. Yeah. And as we talked about at the start, like giving, giving yourself grace, giving other people grace, it's still something I, I'm not fantastic at and I have to like actively work to do. But um, I, I think it's actually really exactly on, on point to everything we've been talking about that like, now I'm at a point where I don't, I think there's value in doing what you need to do and doing what you should do when, when you're young and you have a lot of energy and you need to get yourself sorted. For me, there was, there was a lot yeah. of value in working really hard and, and becoming financially secure and things like that. But I think it is, it is very freeing if you're able to at some point be more intentional about what exactly it is that you want yeah. and again give yourself the grace to know that like there's not any particular path that 
equals success. For me, if you're if you're happy, if you're fulfilled, and if you're living in line with your values, like what else can you ask for? You know, oh. and if you're being nice to other people, I <laughs> put a lot of stock in that. Oh yeah, I know you do. It's so you're such a you're such a luminous character. I, I really love this kind of this just this gorgeous balance between not balance essentially, but this is gorgeous combination of optimism and positivity, but also that. You know, I heard about Beyonce once. She comes off stage and says, was that all right? So it's like, do you know what I mean? It's that kind of sense of being, was that all right as well? So it's like this this, this kind of um, humility as well, but not cloying, not cloying humility, but just like genuine, genuine, like, was that all right? And I'm sure you'll say that to me when we when we stop recording as well. <laughs> I will. Well, I and the answer is my yes. Husband gives me, my husband gives me a hard time, Sarah, about like, yeah. I listen back sometimes to my own radio shows and I think he thought it was vain. And I was like, no, you don't understand. I am literally listening to make sure it was okay yeah. and see what I could do better for next time. Yeah, yeah. Not yeah. But I, I love listening to mine back because I really enjoy the guests and I want to get the the juice from them as well. So, um, <laughs> although I'm, good I'm present, I'm present during the interview itself. So I love listening back to it a few times and, you know, I'm kind of not too bothered anymore about hearing myself, you know, anyway, but yeah, you've just got this gorgeous luminous presence and you've taken us on such an incredible journey of reinvention from being that feral child in Hawaii with your, uh, you know, unique mum and dad. And then, you know, your, your step parents and you, the Grammys and um, choosing yourself to go off to board boarding school uh, in Maui and then you know deciding to go and do Spanish and then how you fell into Japanese and then how you moved to Japan and Kyoto really set you up for that and then onto the JET program and then making this incredible choice and I think this is really I hope we do have younger listeners but like that really great choice of being like I'm I'm actually going to enter into a steady corporate world now in order to set myself up for the future it's really amazing that you had that savvy to know that to know that kind of um to to know to 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 make that groundwork and to look left and look right and learn how to do everything and then move through like that and then when you were 40 41 which is when I quit my job and started my business I've now realized you go what and then you decide to to join the radio station and then that keeps your passion alive and you love reading as well there's this art thread that runs through it too it's just so so uh gratifying to listen to your story and I'm so interested to see what the next reinventions are when you're when your kids grow up and when they become more independent from you and and then you have a whole new generation coming through how wonderful um Thank you so much for listening to me and for seeing me. I feel very seen, which is hard, hard to do. So, th- so thank you, Sarah. I just wanted to maybe mention one last thing as you were talking. I was thinking about this. One thing I've learned through therapy is that my therapist kind of pointed out to me that some of my early choices were driven by fear, honestly, that, you know, like I, I went and got a, a corporate job because it was like the only way I could see to make enough money to get myself kind of stabilized. Yeah. And I, I didn't like that for a long time. I thought that wasn't a good thing, you know, that my that I was making decisions based on fear as opposed to what I actually wanted or something. And um, my therapist kind of said, like, you know, there's there's no like more. It's not a good or a bad thing. It's just a thing. And it's OK. So, you know, it's it's OK, again, to give yourself grace, grace and say like yeah. I was doing the best that I could at the time with what I knew. And in my case, like I, I got quite lucky that some of those choices turned out to be good good choices that help me it's amazing and you know not being fearful about money is an intense privilege and growing up poor will make you want to to stabilize I think omoimasu we say in Japanese (laughs) omoimasu so where can we find you then where's your radio station Oh, bless. Um, so it is live on RTL Luxembourg, uh, the English language section, Today Radio. So you can find it at today.radio to hear me live or all of my old shows are under our playback site, which is called RTL Play. It's a website and an app. And my show is actually called The Hangover. So you just need to navigate to The Hangover. It's a Sunday morning, like ease into the day type of show. So and it's all it music. All music. Uh, it's mostly music. It's 
I think one of my core genres, I call it contemporary edgy Americana. So it's kind of like chilled out, you know, bluegrassy, but then also a bit edgy. I honestly, I play pretty much anything. The goal is that it's going to help people. You know, when I pitched it, I said, you're struggling. I'm struggling. Let's ease into the day together. And so it's kind of like put on in your kitchen music when you're trying to face the day. Sarah, I've got one last question for you. Quick fire. Favorite song? Oh my God. You know, for the longest time, I've said Heart of Gold by Neil Young. But just now, when you asked me, the first thing that came to mind is a song called One Day by Sharon Van Etten. And if you don't know it, I can't recommend it enough. I think she's on my bucket list of people I'd like to interview. Speaking of reinvention, she's a she was also, she was in a bad relationship and had to leave it and change her whole life. But she's, she's an amazing artist. Oh, thank you. This has been so great. I hope that somebody somewhere listens to it and is, is inspired by you and, and has some great concrete things. Thanks for listening, everybody. And thank you, Sarah Taff. Thanks, Sarah. Thank you so much for listening to these creative musings and stories of reinvention. And if it's Guests Week, big love and gratitude to our guests. Go follow them everywhere. Shout out to Laura Marushima for her podcast management and support. I would love if you would follow and subscribe this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and share with a friend you think would love or benefit from it. You can also find me at Sarah Brewer Creative on Facebook and Instagram and get on my occasional, very occasional newsletter list at sarahbrewer.com. I just love that you're here and I'll catch you the next time on the Legends Podcast. Rise like a phoenix, baby. And don't forget to take other people with you. Bye.